take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Psalm 23. Um, looking forward to looking at this text with you today. I'm, I'm deeply indebted to Ian Hamilton for many of the insights I'll be sharing with you today. But let us look at God's Word this morning from Psalm 23. Let me read this psalm in its entirety. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we... We praise and thank you, O God, so much for your word and for, for wonderful psalms like the one that we're looking at um, this month and the next month. Lord, I know that for many in our congregation, uh, they have gone through many hardships and difficulty, even in this past week, to hear the number of things that have happened to people. But we thank you, O God, Lord, the unchangeable one, the one that is all sufficient, that you are our shepherd. And so we come to you this morning, our God, who is the giver of life. And we look to you, O oh God, to be our hope. So please speak to us today, we pray. Help us to hear and to take to heart the things that we hear. And may it draw us closer to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Psalm 23, we've been looking at that for a couple of weeks now, and, and it is uh, a very interesting psalm. It, it is interesting in the fact that there are no pleas and there are no prayers to God for anything. I don't know if you notice that or not. There are plenty of other psalms where the writers do cry out to the Lord or they pray to Him for something specific, and so it's only appropriate in, in our lives as we go through uh, different circumstances and we do cry out to the Lord but but David really in this psalm is preoccupied with the goodness of the Lord you could say in one sense that it is a statement of the believers confidence in God and I don't know about you but right now I think more than ever in the days and the times in which we live we need such statements we need to be reminded of the due benefits of the life of faith as the church is more and more villainized as the culture and the church move farther and farther apart and uh, we are looked at as outdated and and bygone and feeling more and more the pressure of the culture that we be reminded of really who we are in Jesus Christ that we need to take our cues not from the world but from the word that God has given to us, what He has spoken to us. And He has said to us, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not lack anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. God 
restores me. He, he makes my life whole. Now, how are we to understand that word restore? We're only going to be looking at half of a verse today. And so we really need to understand what he's talking about when he says he restores my soul. Well, it, it's a little tricky in one sense because this Hebrew word that is used here is a word that has a whole variety of different meanings. Uh, one of the things that it can mean is, is it could mean that he refreshes my soul. That, that he takes me from that, that sense of dryness to a real sweetness. And that really would fit the context of this psalm very well. Because he's, he's talked about the idea of how the shepherd, how, how God leads his people to pastures. To pastures that have this green grass. In Israel, they only had green grass two or three months out of the year. And, and he, he leads us to that pasture where there's that fresh spring grass that tastes so good, that is so wonderful to, to lie down in and rest in. And not only that, but there is that water that refreshes us, that, that, uh, that the uh, shepherd can take and, and wash off the wounds that we have incurred as we walked along the path of life. And, and there's that, just that sense of rest. And so in that sense... You know, uh, it, it makes sense that it is that he refreshes us. And it is true that the Lord does at times with his people, for his people, our shepherd does refresh us at times when we become dry, when we become spiritually jaded. I know we don't want to admit that, do we? But aren't there times, you know, probably more times than we want to admit when our hearts have become sort of jaded towards the Lord? when the gospel is not as sweet to our taste as it once was. When we come on Sunday mornings to worship the Lord on His day, but it's lacking. Um, not as intimate as it once was when Jesus Christ first captured our hearts. Times when you feel washed out spiritually. The Lord comes to us in those times of spiritual dryness and He refreshes us. He renews us, and He revives us. Now, how, how does He do that? Well, all you have to do is turn back a couple of chapters earlier, before Psalm 23 to Psalm 19, and, and you see in verse 7 that the law of the Lord is perfect. And then He goes on and He describes what that looks like. It's reviving the soul. That's how we are revived. That's how we are refreshed is through His Word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. He does that through His Word, but also not only through His Word, but as His Spirit ministers to us through His Word. And Jesus talks about that in, in John 16, about how the Holy Spirit will come and remind us of all the things that Christ has said, and He will, he will teach us. And, and so the Spirit works in our hearts. Our Heavenly Shepherd ministers to His sheep, reviving their souls. So that's one way that we could understand that word, but there's another meaning to this Hebrew word. I, I would suggest even a more basic meaning, a, a root meaning, if you could, of the word that carries with it the idea of being turned around, of being turned back. Uh, the Lord restores my soul. He returns me to himself. 
So rather than a sense of refreshment, it's a sense of returning to the Lord, maybe when we have strayed. And it's the, the same word for God converting the soul, for the, the turning of the soul back to himself. Now, brothers and sisters, this ought, this ought to be refreshing to us as we gather in God's house this morning. These, these must be sweet words to us as believers because we know what it is like to stray from our kind heavenly shepherd, do we not? Um, we, we know what it's like to be seduced into sin. We know what it's like to defect in our hearts from the grace and the love of God who gave himself in Jesus Christ for us. Do we not? We all know what it is to give up fellowship with God to pursue the fleeting pleasures of this world. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed is we as men have gathered a number of times this week to study God's word. First of all, on Wednesday night, as we've been looking at uh, uh, Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, we, it starts out by just talking about what is sin and how we ought to view sin and how sin is sort of disappearing from the church. You know, now we don't sin, we, we have struggles, right? Uh, you know, things just are, uh, we have issues, you know, that kind of stuff. We're beginning to shift our language rather than it being an offense against God. It's just a problem that we have. And so he, he talked about that and how we need to be aware of that. But then even as we have gone on and we, uh, on yesterday, we looked at the PCA position paper on human sexuality that our denomination is going to be considering this summer. Uh, we, we looked at that and one of the portions of that paper talked about the doctrine of sin and, and how sin is not just what we do or what we don't do or what we say. We oftentimes think of sin as an action or sort of an inaction of not doing the things we ought to do. And, you know, from in all fairness, from James 1, we sort of get that idea that, you know, you can be tempted and then you give into that sin. And when it comes to external temptations, that's true. But the Bible also talks about sin in a very different way. It talks about it as coming from, even from our desires. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, where, where Jesus is uh, speaking to the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, listen, even if you, if you lust after a woman, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. If you say to your brother, Raka, you've already killed him. Now, you didn't do those things. You know, that, that's what it, Jesus says. You didn't actually sleep with that woman, but you lusted. The desire was there, and that was sin. And so, you know, when you stop and you think about that, you know, we already know that we are saints saved by grace that still struggle with sin. But when you think of sin in that way, then all of a sudden, just the enormity of our sin can overwhelm us and, and to see that, that we need restoring well, I want us to see a couple of things from this passage, sort of conclusions, applications, things to think about as we think about the Lord is the one who restores us, the one who causes us to return to himself. The first thing I want us to see is that the best of Christians fall into sin and need God's restoring mercy. The best of Christians fall into sin and need God's restoring mercy. 
Uh, there are times when our sins are obvious, are they not? I mean, even shameful and disgraceful. And everyone knows that we need restoring. Now, we may not do that here in the church on Sunday morning. We all look really good on Sunday morning, right? But, you know, it may be in the heat of the moment in our households as we're living amongst our family or with our roommates or whatever our situation might be, that actually that sin comes out. And, and it becomes very clear that we need restoring. But there are also other times when our rejection of God's authority, our sin, is more internal. Um, I would say private, but I, don't, I, think that's, I think that's a dangerous term to use when it comes to sin. Because I think we, when we say that our sin is private, then we think it only affects us. But even the sin that we do internally... Is, is a sin that affects those that are around us as well. The Bible tells us that. And, and, and so in those times when our struggle uh, or our sin is internal, no one knows that we need restoring except maybe ourselves and, and the Lord. And so we try to hide that sin from others and we prepend, prepare, pretend excuse me, that all is well when inwardly there is a dryness, dryness a doling of our souls to the things of the Lord. It's been interesting this week, last week, this week, you know, to watch Christians' reaction to the news of the scandal with Rabbi Zacharias. And uh, I jumped on the internet and thought, yeah, I just want to hear what Christians have to say about this. And uh, it's, it's amazing. One reaction seems to have been people trying to figure out whether he's in heaven or hell. And, uh, you know, just making cases one way or the other. But, but probably the position I appreciate more is, is those people who say, brothers, we need to be careful. This needs to be a warning to all of us that we are not immune to falling into great sin. It's a reminder that none of us can say, oh, I would never do that. I, I would never sin like that person did. But the reality is, is the only thing keeping us from being as bad as we are is the mercy of God. Amen? No Christian is invulnerable to spiritual and moral failings and sin. And so David is speaking here with firsthand experience. You know, he, he's, he's not speaking abstractly or, or making some vague observation about God that that he's learned maybe at the feet of his parents or something. He is speaking as one who has walked down this road of moral failing. He, he has been a sheep who has walked away from the protective presence of the shepherd, and he has pursued an adulterous relationship, and then had Bathsheba's husband killed to cover up his sin. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it's amazing to see how far David went into sin with all the privileges that God had given to him. He had taken him from a shepherd boy and raised him up to be the leader of God's people. God even said that he was a man after God's own heart. The Lord had blessed and benefited David greatly and see how far he went into sin. He strayed so far. It's no wonder that Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Because the reality is, is that any of us could be in that position. Satan is a master at baiting his sins and temptation. Sin looks so good 
And, and you just think that you have to do it, right? When sin comes your way, oftentimes it just feels like you have no other choice. And, and while for most of us, unlike David, uh, we'll not be confronted with public and vile sin, for most of us, our sin will be inward. It may be stuff that people doesn't know. They won't see the, the lust of our hearts. But they may not see when we stay on the internet late at night and gamble away the, thing, the provision that the Lord has given to us. Or maybe it's not even that radical. Maybe it's just the cold heart that we carry around that nobody else sees. Just sort of that creeping disinterest in spiritual things. There is nothing more evil than not giving to the Lord the praise and the honor and the glory that is His. And yet oftentimes our hearts are cold towards Him. Maybe confined to nothing more than what we do here on Sunday morning. Thomas Manton, an English Puritan, said, Though the pleasures of sin are short and, and insignificant, yet because they are near at hand, in other words, they're right there in front of us, the temptation is right there, they have more influence than the joys of heaven, which seem so future and so absent from us. And, and so many part the ways of Christianity for the vilest price. You see, sin can be powerfully compelling and seductive. Satan knows how to engineer his temptations to suit you, to suit your temperament, to suit your personality, to suit your background. He just can bring all that together in the perfect temptation, the perfect storm. And the best of Christians can fall into sin, publicly or inwardly. And that's why our Savior said to his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, it's one thing to be outwardly tempted. It's another thing to enter into that temptation. And so we must be careful to watch and pray, be on our guard, because the best of Christians can fall into sin. But the second point I want you to see is to remind us, as we are here, that our heaven, of our heavenly shepherd's mercy and his kindness. He restores he restores. David is speaking of the grace of God that restored him to fellowship with God in his favor. God didn't leave David where he was in his sin with Bathsheba or his murder of Uriah. Um, David is telling us that the grace of God is so glorious that no matter how badly we have failed, no matter how shameful or disgraceful our sin, our Shepherd restores our sin. Amen? He brings us back to himself. The Bible has a word that it uses for that, and it is the word grace. Right? Unimaginable, out of this world, grace. We see his kindness and his mercy. There, there, I, I know we talk about grace. I know we use illustrations to try to explain grace, especially to our kids, to help them to understand it's an undeserved gift. But in one sense, there's nothing adequate in this world that can truly describe what grace is. Because our God is way more holy than we can comprehend. And we are much, our sin is much more offensive to Him than what we realize. And so it's, it's uh, something that really comes from a different world, a different realm, a, a different kingdom, a different sphere. Um, it's interesting in John's 
epistle, 1 John 3, 1, he said, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. God's love is so different than the love that we show to one another. Even when we sacrificially love someone, His love is so much greater. It's the same way with His grace. It is loving the unlovely. So God comes to us in our defections from Him, and He tirelessly turns us around. And, and I think we need to remember that it is He who does it. It's not us. You know, how many times have you found yourself, after you've fallen into the same temptation about a hundred times, that you have finally said, I'm serious this time. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm not going to fall into that sin again. As if we think that it is us that can turn our own hearts around. Brothers and sisters, there is no hope there. I'll just tell you that. That is a dead-end street. Our only hope is that God is the one that restores our soul. And, and I know that... Uh, in some ways, when you think about His wonderful grace in doing so, it's sort of a scandalous work that God does, at least in the eyes of the world, because uh, grace says that though you are a murderer, though you are an adulterer like David, or maybe you are someone who denied God Himself like Peter, the God of grace says, I will turn you back to Myself. David says, I know this firsthand about the Lord because he did this in my life. It is a God alone who can restore us. So no matter how badly sin and Satan may have marred your life, brothers and sisters, no matter where you're at, no matter what the struggles are that you have, that you are going through, no matter what temptations you face this week, and the way you responded to those temptations, I want to tell you that there is a God in heaven who is able to restore your soul. We read in Hosea 14.4, the Lord saying to his people, I will heal their apostasy, that is their waywardness. I will love them freely. And it's important that we understand that because Satan is right there uh, he, his, one of his devices is when we fall or fail or drift away, whether that be publicly or inwardly, that Satan whispers in our ears that God is finished with us. He says, you know, you're washed up. You know, who would love the likes of you? Is what Satan says to us. Well, the whole Bible says to us, God is the one who likes the love, that loves the likes of us. Not because of what he has done, but because he has loved us. But, but notice I want you to see here that this verse doesn't say that he restored our soul. Past tense. He says the Lord restores. Present tense. Because we need restoration daily. We need converting daily. And, and don't take that too far. I recognize there's only one conversion once and for all. But we need God daily to come to us and to turn us around and restore us to himself. Because we sin in so many ways, and some that we don't even see. And so he restores us, as we saw earlier, principally through his word and his spirit. You know, he confronts us with the sinfulness of, of our sin. You know, oftentimes we take our sins so lightly. I, I sometimes hear, well, I sometimes hear kids or adults say this, I guess, too, but usually it's kids. You know, you, you point out something that they did wrong. Have your kids ever done this? Kids, have you ever done this to your parents? And what do you say? Sorry. 
you know, there's sort of the sing-song type of, sorry, like this is no big deal. And sometimes that could be our attitude towards God when we come to Him and we confess our sin. Sorry, there's no sense of offense, no sense of I have wronged you, no sense of, of the weight of our sins. We, we come, you know, every Lord's Day, do we not? And we confess our sins and we say amen and we hear assurance of pardon. But what, what is our attitude as we come to confess our sins to the Lord? When, when were you last pierced to the innermost part of your being with the sinfulness of your sin? When, when did you last cry out to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? When did your sin last humble you to the dust? You know, praise God, God doesn't leave us in our darkness, does He? He knows that He needs to bring us into the light, the light that pierces our soul, and we discover over again the sinfulness of sin. Then, as we begin to realize that sin, then He impresses upon us the grace and the sweetness of His loving forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It's like it happens at the same time, doesn't it? We see the sinfulness of our sins, but then at the same time, we also discover that where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds. That though sin is serious, grace is sweeter, and that there is a mercy with God. And Satan wants to do everything he can, brothers and sisters, to hide that from you. He wants you to forget that. He doesn't want you to know that there is true forgiveness. But God not only uses His Word and His Spirit to bring these things to light, but God often uses His servants to communicate His restoring grace. I mean, think about David's life. What was it that brought David back? You know, David had gotten a woman pregnant, another man's wife pregnant, uh, killed off her husband. He was sort of covering that all up. He was good. He was still king of God's people. Things were great, right? And then the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David. Now, can you imagine being in Nathan's shoes? I mean, here's a king who, who has a reputation of being a man after God's own heart, but you know for a fact, because God's revealed to you, that he slept with another woman, and he had her husband killed. He's a powerful king. He really doesn't see his sin at all, and you're supposed to go and tell him you're the man. Who wants that job, right? But Nathan goes, and he, he tells him. And, and, and David and, and God uses that in David's life to cause him to repent and to see his sin and to bring him to his knees. It sort of reminds me of what Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 6, chapter 1, or Galatians 6, verse 1, excuse me, Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any, trans any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's exactly what he's describing, what Nathan did. Now, I know some people want to take that to mean that he's talking about the elders of the church when he says, those of you who are spiritual. I think that's probably putting a little more weight on that text than really is there. It seems to be that he is talking about all of us, whether you're male, female, young, old, whoever you are. If you are spiritual and you see your brother or sister in sin, you are to go to them, right? And you are to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So in one sense, we're all sort of our brother's keeper uh, to, to be there for them. We all have a ministry of restoration. 
God uses his people to minister his amazing grace to the disgraced and fallen brothers and sisters. But understand, it is in a spirit of gentleness. You see, it's at that point when we go to our brother and sister to restore them that we are actually uh, exhibiting the character of Christ. That Christ is working through us. Because what does Isaiah say about the Messiah who is going to come? Isaiah 42.3, he, he talks about the Messiah as one. He says, uh, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In other words, in the most sensitive of situations, in those that, that, that are the most weak, he comes to them and he ministers to them in a way that he does not crush them. He, he is gentle to them. But instead, he, he restores them. They are gentle with the wayward and kind to the falling. And if you're here this morning and you need restoring as a Christian, then I want you to be sure of this, that God is rich in mercy. Do you hear that? If you don't remember anything else I say this morning... Hear that God is rich in mercy and He restores. If you're not a Christian, then you need to hear the same thing. God is rich in mercy and He is able to turn your heart back to Himself. And so if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you need to get on your knees and you need to pray to God and you need to ask Him to give you a new heart. You can't manufacture that yourself. You know, you, you can't, you know, turn over a new leaf and just try to do things better. It won't work. It won't happen. You can't do that with an old, wicked, sinful heart. He has to give you a new heart. And he can turn you back to himself. And he will. If you come to him. And so even the best of us are sinners. But God's mercy is so great. And the third thing I want us to see is God's ultimate purpose in, is, is restoration. What is God's ultimate purpose for this creation, uh, this fallen world that we live in, and, and sinful world that we live in? Well, His ultimate purpose is to restore all things back to Himself in Jesus Christ. God's ultimate purpose is to fix this broken world, this broken cosmos. And every spiritual restoration that God does is an anticipation of the ultimate restoration of all things in Jesus Christ. So that means every time God restores you from your sin and He forgives you and brings you back into that communion with Him, He is saying to you, I will one day restore all things and make all things new. Because there is a day that God has appointed coming where He's going to come for His people. Um, where there will be no more defections, where there will be no more wonderings. God will no more say that I will heal your backsliding freely. God will not forgive our backsliding because he won't have to, because all sin will be done away with. He will make us complete in Jesus Christ. He will wipe away every sin. He will make a new heaven and a new earth, and no one will be able, ever be able to say again, He restores my soul. We cannot say that at that point in time. What we will say at that point in time is, 
He has restored my soul. Amen. Amen. May the Lord help us to know that He is rich in mercy. And, and may His mercy lead us to worship. I know we're coming at the end of the worship service and we'll be dismissing you in a little bit and you'll be leaving and you'll be thinking, well, what do you mean lead us to mercy? Well, as you leave this place and you uh, have times of worship this week, whether that be individually, maybe that will be as a household, you'll gather to worship. Remember God's mercy and let that fuel your worship of Him. As you leave this place, as you go into your week, not only do we worship the Lord with our lips, but with our lives as well. And let that direct your worship. Let that direct the way you live. And may you walk in obedience and walk in His strength. May you turn to Him in the midst of your temptations, knowing that His mercy is great. And even if you succumb to temptation and you sin, that He is a God who restores. And so let us leave this place, young and old, saying, He restores my soul. Amen. Amen. Let's take just a few moments and just have a time of silence and meditation as we reflect upon the word that is preached today and how that applies to our lives. Please bow with me. Lord, we, we know that there's a, a saying in the military that you are to live as becomes an officer. You know, your life is supposed to reflect your position. And we know in, in the same way, you have told us in your word that we are to live as saints. But God, we come to you this morning recognizing that we don't always do that. That oftentimes, God, we have given into sin in ways that are, are just horrendous. Lord, ways that we, we feel shame, even though nobody knows the sins that we have committed this week. But Lord, we are so thankful that we can come to you knowing that you are a God who restores us. And so, Father, I pray for the one that may be here today who is struggling and wrestling, that they would find forgiveness in you. But Lord, I also pray that knowing that you are a God that forgives us and restores us, that that would not, um, that we would not wrongly think, oh great, I can just sin all I want. 
Because Paul said, no, that's ridiculous. God has forgiven you. That should compel us to holiness. And so please help us, O oh God, to live holy lives this week, to be humble, Lord, as we are reaching out to other sinners as uh, uh, one beggar bringing bread to another beggar, knowing that we don't deserve it. Lord, just please, we pray that you would instill and create in our church a humility that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also a boldness, um, knowing that our God is powerful and great to save and to restore. We just thank you, O oh Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.